0: Jiminy at that point had four employees, so I was the youngest member of the team, and it wasn't much of a team. But uh, you know, it had one chairlift and a couple t-bars and a glass house as a base lodge and a, a butler building. So everything that's here today is a transformation from what was here in 1969. There's nothing left. Welcome to the storm.
1: I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got a big one today, the legend of Northeast skiing. Before we do that, a reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. And if you're listening on iTunes and you like the pod, drop me a review. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook at the Storm Skiing Journal. Each of those platforms is going to give you a slightly different experience, so check them out if you're so inclined. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10 for 10% off subscriptions. Sign up by November 1st to make sure you get the first issue. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. The Mountain Gazette returns in November in print form for the first time in eight years. These issues will sell out. Grab your subscription today over at MountainGazette.com. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 26, Brian Fairbank, Chairman of the Fairbank Group. It's easy to look at the Northeast ski area landscape and see its current state as inevitable. But it wasn't. The mountains we get to ski today are the direct result of deliberate decisions undertaken by visionary founders and managers over the past several decades. This is not an easy place to run a ski area, and those who have succeeded have had a combination of resilience, foresight, determination, timing, and luck. And I've got one of the best on the show today. When Brian Fairbank arrived at Jiminy Peak in 1969, it had four employees, one double chair, two T-bars, and two rope toes. Today, it's the most advanced ski area in the Berkshires, with an expansive lift network topped off with a high-speed six-pack to the summit. There was nothing inevitable about this. Massachusetts is littered with nearly 200 abandoned ski areas. Jiminy Peak is a naturally good ski mountain but so are a lot of the ones that are gone. It succeeded because Brian Fairbank made it succeed. He's rolled that success into what is one of the strongest regional ski companies in the United States. The Fairbank Group owns Jiminy Peak and Cranmore, runs Bromley, and has divisions in real estate, snowmaking, and clean energy, and resort employee training. His son, Tyler, is the CEO of the whole operation. It's a remarkable life story, and as you'll hear, it's one that hasn't been without setbacks. This kind of success does not come easily, but Brian is going to tell us all about how he did it. Let's go. My guest today is the chairman of the Fairbank Group, which owns Jiminy Peak in Massachusetts and Cranmore in New Hampshire and operates Vermont's Bromley Mountain. The company also manages a real estate investment group, a renewable energy development company called EOS Ventures, and two technology companies, Snowgun Technology and Full Wheel Productions. He is a member of the National Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame Class of 2020 and a past recipient of the National Ski Areas Association's Lifetime Achievement Award. Brian Fairbank is my guest. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Glad to be here. First of all, Brian, huge congratulations for your induction into the National Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. You're one of eight individuals to be inducted this year and one of only 441 all-time. How does that feel?
0: Well, I'm um, feel so honored to to receive it, and I guess I'm I feel most honored because it was 300 people voting for it, so you know that it was an independent process, and I just feel like it's the pinnacle of my career to say, oh, my gosh, there's a there's no more mountain to climb, and uh, because that really says
1: it all. You know, typically with something like this, you'd have an opportunity to gather at some sort of ceremony mingle with the other inductees, see some of the the voters and some of the other folks, you know, throughout the industry. Unfortunately, we can't have these sorts of gatherings right now because of COVID. How important is it to gather in a circumstance like this, Brian, and how much do you miss not having
0: it? Well, I've been to every one of the inductions at the ski resorts um, over the last probably eight or ten years. And the Hall of Fame does a fabulous job of doing a video clip of each inductee, and the inductee gets up to talk and there are people in the audience that are very close to the inductee so it's a really uh, hyped up evening that's very emotional for the uh the inductee and David Engemey called me the other day to congratulate me and said you know you wait until you get to the the ceremony the ceremony really chokes you up if, if finding out that you were going to be inducted was was a high note in your life and so I'll I'll miss it but I recognize that if it can't happen because of COVID, it can't happen. Um, I know the Hall of Fame is trying to see if there's a way to do it virtually, but that's a big challenge.
1: So let's talk about your career a little bit. You started skiing very young. Do you remember that first time, Brian? Where did you ski and who took you there?
0: I remember it as if it was yesterday. I was six years old. My dad took me to a little rope tow area that was a county. Um, ski hill called Emory Park and it was uh, upside down. You park your car on top and my dad put me on a pair of skis and said all you have to do is you know the snow plow and it'll slow you down and you know uh, you'll be fine. Well I crashed and burned you know within 50 feet my dad came down got me up I crashed again and again and again and I swear he never told me how to grab the rope toe when I got to the bottom so I watched people for you know a while, and then I remember coming up the rope toe and um, falling, getting off it, and coming over. And I was no better prepared to take the second run than I was the first. But I think I took six or eight runs that day, and by the end of the day, I was addicted to skiing. And I look at it and say, that one day changed my life. Because I think once you get passionate about something, if you're able to follow it through the rest of your life, you have a better chance of being successful and being happier. And so that day triggered a lot. But there was another big day that happened when I was 12 years old. So I I skied a lot as a youngster. But my parents took me to Whiteface Mountain for a camping trip in in, uh, 1958. And I met a man named Arthur Draper, who was at the bottom of the lifts on a summer day, and he started talking to me because I was so interested about the lifts and what do they do with this and what do they do with that. And I asked him, I said, is there anything that you have to be really careful of in in the ski area um, building up? And uh, he said, oh, yeah, you have to worry about this, this, and this. And I said, well, there's a hill south of Buffalo that my dad takes me bird hunting with called um, Blue Mountain." And um, if I sent you a topo map of it, could you make some comments on it? And I went home, I found the topo map that I had, and I sent it to him. And he took the time to send me a two-page type letter with lots of little errors in it, but it um, literally talked about the wind, walked, talked about uh, slope design, talked about water runoff, talked about lifts, and um, it just was magical to me that Somebody further intrigued me with the ski industry. I lost the letter when I moved from one house to the other in 1980 81. And I was, you know, really frustrated with myself because I couldn't find it because it was a letter I really wanted to keep for my lifetime. And from there, it just, you know, continued to be a passion for skiing and then ski teaching as a high school student. Um, um ski racing, I never was a great racer, but, you know, I, I got in the starting gate in western New York and um, um, was, you know, just passionate about skiing all the way through high school. So at what point did you decide, Brian, that you wanted to make this a career? I had an uncle who was in the ski business as a ski school director at what was called Glenwood Acres, right next to Kissing Bridge. And my uncle to me was my idol. He was kind of like my the brother I didn't have, and so I was very close with him. And I was enamored with the fact that he was able to do something that he loved, being a ski school director, and then doing landscape work in the summertime. And it was like, wow, Uncle Perry—I I call him Uncle Perry—as um, you know, was really somebody who kind of got me more interested in it and I taught for him for a year and a half I got certified while I was you know with Perry and I was 19 when I got certified and that just further entrenched me with saying okay what do I want to do I want to do something in skiing I don't know what it is at that point it really was thinking about being a ski school director somewhere and um I ended up going to Jamestown Community College which is where I was born and I taught skiing at the Cockane Ski Area, and oh, cool. was the assistant director of the of that ski area. And uh, Franz Elsegan was my boss, and uh, he was from Europe, and he was um, he was a great guy. He, he influenced me in lots of little ways. But I got a phone call from there to see if I wanted to come to Wisconsin to go to work at the development of a ski resort called Wintergreen in Spring Green, Wisconsin. And um, I went out, interviewed, took the job, but the uniqueness that was that happened with that job is I ended up interfacing with the Taliesin East um, architects, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright architects cool. for all of the buildings and, the, and so forth. So now I got to really expose myself to a different aspect of the industry, get my hands dirty, and and learn to communicate between the contractors as a youngster uh, truly and it that influenced my life in terms of a lot that's happened at Jiminy and and what we're doing at Cranmore trying to say, okay, how do we blend things in as best we can so that they fit in the natural environment that was a a big thing with Frank Lloyd Wright was trying to build homes that were tucked into the landscape. Well, we haven't taken them into tucking them into the landscape, but we've tried to create a look and a feel, uh, especially at Jiminy, which is um, New England-driven. Uh, Cranmore is going to be more mountain-driven in terms of its architectural theme and so forth. So it was a, a big, um, uh, insightful period of time in my life, and I came to Jiminy in 1969 for an interview with Fred Crane. And Fred Crane was from the uh, Crane Paper Company, and he was the head of research and development. And the family board of directors said, while you're passionate about Jiminy, you've got to make a choice. You're either going to spend your time at Jiminy or you're going to spend your time at research and development. And he and I clicked. I was 23 years old. Um, He said, let's give it a shot. I've got to not be coming out there as frequently as I used to, but you can come to me. You can call me on the phone, and let's see if we can make it work. And Fred ended up becoming a mentor, a surrogate father, and a great friend. Um, he and I went helicopter skiing in 1985, so we had we built a built a very strong relationship over my my time at Chimney, and that was a turning point. Was being able to come here and. And really get my teeth into the ski industry by, you know, running a ski resort. Jiminy at that point had four employees, so I was the youngest member of the team. And it, it wasn't much of a team, but uh, you know, it, it had one chairlift and a couple t-bars and a glass house as a base lodge and a, a butler building. So it uh, everything that's here today is a transformation from what was here in 1969. There's no, nothing left. Uh, from nineteen sixty nine other than things in our offices that are you know uh, you know pieces of steel that we may want to keep or whatever um so that kind of gets you into the point of what launched my r- true career when you arrived in
1: Western Massachusetts in nineteen sixty nine what was that ski scene like and, and I'm curious because one of the guests on the podcast was Jeremy Davis founder of the New England Lost Ski Areas Project, and we talked about how Massachusetts, small as it is, has 172 lost ski areas, and that's remarkable when you consider there's probably about a dozen operating ski areas in Massachusetts today. So how crowded was that ski scene when you showed up in late 1960s Massachusetts?
0: Well, Otis Ridge, Brody Mountain, Butternut Basin, Catamount, um, Berkshire Snow Basin, Was called Thunder Mountain, which is now Berkshire East. Um, A place, Chickley Alps, in um, Charlemont, or near Charlemont. Um, Oh, I'm I'm missing a couple, but Mount Tom was in Western Mass. It was west of the the Connecticut River, so it it falls into that court. Blanford Ski Club, um, which um, has just folded up, unfortunately. Uh, I think that covers pretty much what was the lay of the land back then. And for Jiminy, for the most part, the audience was um, Berkshireites and Albanyites. And it wasn't New York in any you know material way. And we skied, uh, I think probably somewhere around forty thousand skier visits in, in a good year back then. And and that may be an exaggeration. It might have been thirty. We just didn't I was paying attention to survival.
1: So what was your job when you first arrived, Brian, and then take us through your progression of jobs over the years as you moved up at Gemini?
0: When I came here, I was considered the general manager, and by that I meant that I was responsible for everything from writing the checks to marketing to snowmaking to, to lifts, uh, all the maintenance of the facility, and whatever you know marketing campaign we may have put together back then. And but again, with a small number of people, a small number of skier visits, and even for the first three or four years, we only grew to like six or seven people that worked for us year round or semi year round because in the summertime it was almost all maintenance. So I spent time, you know, greasing shivs, painting lift towers, um, you know doing everything uh, that was required to work with the maintenance team to get us ready for, you know, the ensuing winter. So it it was very much a hands-on job, and I probably that hands-on became a part of my personal culture and continued on in some regards of the resort, especially as it pertains to snowmaking until today. Um, What evolved is in the first five years, we were fighting for survival, and 1974 was probably the closest we ever came to bankruptcy and in the process I unfortunately got some job offers to go elsewhere one of them was from Loon Mountain from Governor Sherm Adams and my wife was uh, really wanting us to go there because it was a much more established uh, probably stronger ski area from a financial standpoint and she loved the White Mountains and uh, Governor Adams and I, as he put it, uh, danced around the, the dance floor for uh, uh, too many days, and he called me on the 4th of July at 6 o'clock in the morning and said to me, Um, you coming up to work here or aren't you? And he said, I'm not getting off the phone till I get an answer. And uh, I had just had my wisdom teeth out, and I said, you know, Governor, I, I guess my answer has to be No. Well, that then left me in the situation of how am I going to resurrect Jiminy? And I developed at that t- tender age a restructuring plan that gave us the ability to borrow some money from some bankers, sell some skiing privileged stock to people, and um, take the land that had been leased onto our balance sheet so that it became an asset of the company, which. Mm-hmm. uh you know materially changed our financial picture from a banker's standpoint and from there on things kind of took off uh we built a alpine slide in 1976 77 opened it in the spring of 77 that was a turning point and that was a turning point that instead of having six year-round employees we went to 20 to 25 year-round employees because we had enough stuff to do to get ready between summer and winter that we were able to keep people pretty much full-time, or if not, they got laid off for the month of April and came back in May. As I look back on it, there's probably still, Stuart, without exaggeration, there's probably 10 or 15 of those people still working here. And it was the the team that got developed from our uh, tackling the alpine slide is a is a first big project together um really cemented the relationships and the strengths of some people and while none of us are perfect um we got to work together and we got to work together to see something get accomplished and it gave us a foundation to be able to tackle some things thereafter so the Alpine Slide did a lot more than just bring some cash register money in. It, uh, it it got a team of people pulled together.
1: And I'm curious, Brian, how important was building up snowmaking? Because you see this story over and over again. So many ski areas went bankrupt in the, in the 70s, early 80s, because there were just not great snow years during that decade. And the ones that survived tended to be the ones that built up their snowmaking. So how important was that to your evolution and building up and survival and growth of Jiminy Peak over the years?
0: Well, fortunately, I had seen Glenwood Acres back in western New York, back in the you know uh, mid-60s, develop a rather extensive snowmaking plant to help them get through the tough winters. And um, so I was indoctrinated to snowmaking, and putting in the snowmaking system when I first got here which was the first we put in some permanent compressors in 1970. We put more snowmaking pipe on the mountain, bought more guns, and I became addicted to snowmaking, and I recognized that was our product. And I would spend a better part of November and December whenever we got the opportunity to start making snow to be out there on the mountain. And I found that by doing it daily, I had a better perspective of what we could accomplish and what was really a pipe dream that we couldn't accomplish. And that involvement with the snowmaking has uh, been a part of my blood ever since. I, I've uh, been hands-on probably to a fault. Uh, I don't spend the time out there now at all, but I'm you know, am able to deal with the strategy of where we're going to go and, and uh, uh, how much water have we got left, how much water have we got available to us, uh, from a pumping standpoint instead of a reservoir, and so snowmaking became important. It was vital to us because there were some tough times in the 80s uh, and the 70s where um, you got enough snow to ski off one or two lifts for you know um, a week or two if you hadn't had snowmaking. And it became, you know, as I said, it's it was our product. It it what got it's what got the the ship up and running. So you're slowly
1: building up the mountain throughout all this time, turning it into a year-round operation. When did the opportunity to purchase the mountain come up, and how did you manage to do that? Um,
0: good question. Fred Crane um, owned approximately 30 or 40 percent of the stock in the company. And he announced to me in nineteen eighty three or eighty four that he really wanted to sell his stock and help to put his estate in order and not have a you know minority position in Jiminy Peak that would be complicated to deal with from his estate standpoint. And I could um ill afford to buy out his, you know, block of stock and I'd become close with Joel Donnell, who was at that point um, working for the Boston Concessions Group and, and took it over. And I turned to Joe and said, Joe, there's a situation here that, you know, I would love to do, but I don't have the financial means. And Joe said to me, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If you agree and I agree that we're always going to be equal shareholders in the company, I'll pay more for, uh, Mr. Crane's stock than you because you brought the deal to the table. And so we paid out Fred over three years, which is what I needed to do. And in 1986, we ended up um, uh, owning, you know, the vast majority of the stock. We didn't own all of it, but we had controlling interest in the company. And Joe was uh, as still a lifelong friend and a business partner. And I've been fortunate to have him as a business partner.
1: So you've certainly built up the ski area over the years. Take us a little bit through that evolution here, Brian. You you told us what the ski area looked like in 1969. Uh, we can all see what it looks like today, but how did you get it to that point where you have a high-speed six-pack going to the summit uh, and you have a really built-up year-round operation?
0: It took um, many years, uh, more years than I thought, but there were setbacks along the way, either financially or um, snowless winters where you made snow but you still didn't do enough of a volume of business we put in a double-double chairlift replacing two T-bars in 1978 after putting in the alpine slide uh, we did our first real estate project in 1981 which is called Country Village at Gemini Peak and it was our efforts to do it on a time-sharing basis and we eventually got out of that business because I found it difficult um, putting it mildly And we started um, building whole ownership condominiums at Country Village, and all of a sudden there was a demand for those units. Uh, As a result of that, I kind of said, we should take a pause and figure out what does this master plan look like. So I hired Jack Johnson, and Jack Johnson did Deer Valley back at the beginning, and he's from Hmm. um, Park City, Utah. And Jack and his team came out and spent quite a bit of time with me, quite a bit of time looking at topo maps, and really helped us put together a master plan that was going to be a guide for us for the next, you know, I thought 10 years, but it took 25 years to get it built. And as a result of that master plan pause, we built a condominium hotel in 1985 and it was the second biggest project for our team of people to take on, where it's a 100,000-square-foot building approximately, and we broke ground in April, and we got you know um, half of the building up and running by Christmas. Um, we needed to get a sewer and water system put in place for that, which required a sewer plant, so it was our first step in becoming a, a mini-city in terms of self dependency and providing the utilities that were necessary. Um uh, that was the, the launch. From there we put in a, a new base lodge in 1987. We put in a new rental shop in 1988 and we started a, a whole ownership project on the other on the east side of the mountain which is called Mountainside and we put 12 units up and standing and sold half of them. And then the real estate market crashed, and it crashed, you know, dramatically enough so that it was the second episode in my life where I thought, is this going to be, you know, um, uh, survivable? And mm-hmm. I literally got so stressed out over it that I had a, a difficult time dealing with, you know, life for a couple of years. And we got through it, and, um, Thank God for Mountainside because what we did through most of the 90s is we sold one or two um, building lots a summer to help pay the interest meter for the infrastructure that I had to build for Mountainside because we weren't able to support it with lift tickets. And that was uh, the anchor that got us through until oh, 1980 or 1996 or 97. Things started to really turn around when we got to that period of time, and that's where we put in a, uh, a lift to a new side of the mountain called Widow White's Peak. It's a, not a detachable, but it's a four-passenger lift. It gave us another 20% in terrain. Um, we had added summer attractions through each throughout that period of time. You know, trampolines, climbing walls. Um, you know, now an aerial adventure park. Uh, alpine slide, mountain coaster, and did enough things that really gave us, well, we need a a staff of 60 in the summer to be able to keep those operations going, and it's mostly college kids or high school kids. Um, Everything turned around in 1990, 1999, uh, in that I wanted to build a quarter-ownership Hotel project or building that I thought if Les Otten can do it, we can do it, and we found we were not able to successfully. Uh, we built on uh, 12 units, would have had 48 buyers in it, and we sold about half of them. And I recognized it was going to be a slow boat to China, and I found a developer in Newport, Rhode Island, that I had known who wanted to buy the project from us and make it into a timeshare project, and it's now called um, Wyndham. Wyndham bought out the developer, and there's 152 um, timeshare units now built at the base of a a beginner chairlift. And once that happened, we had the ability to go put the six-pack chairlift in, and then we moved like crazy from 2000 to 2006 and 7. We sold more mountainside units. We built the rest of the village center that was planned on the master plan. And literally by 2006 had the master plan complete and no um, future development capacities or capabilities. The sewer plan had been designed for what it had. The land use was maximized, and um, so... That's it was fourteen years ago that I could look at it and say, "Wow, we finished the master plan." It took us twenty-two years.
1: Right, and then you had to drop that windmill on top of the mountain. Talk about that a little bit.
0: Well, throughout the the nineties, snowmaking was just as important as ever, and we expanded our snowmaking and went to the stick technology in the late nineties, as opposed to the air hog. Um, we called them Killington ground guns uh, that were noisy and, and wasted a lot of air. And we saw that as an opportunity to say, okay, we can make more water into snow with less compressed air. And so it was the beginning of saying, how do we get more efficient with our snowmaking plant? And uh, throughout the period of time, we were always testing and trying new equipment and looking to see what could we do to make a difference. Um, And I'll come back to that story in a minute. In 2004, the chairman of the Board of Selectmen made a comment to me which really surprised me at a town meeting. Um, I've been the town moderator since 1974, so I became indoctrinated to the town of Hancock uh, throughout my life. And uh, uh, Suckman worked for General Electric and said, you know, you ought to put a turbine on the top of your mountain. It could help you with your snowmaking, you know, for the the months of November, December, and January when you, you know, get the most wind. Well, he planted the seed. And from there, uh, Jim Van Dyke and our team, who was here from the Alpine Slide days, um, jumped on that and pursued it um, aggressively for two years from getting environmental permits to town permits to um, how we're going to deal with the utility and so forth with a 900kW compressor which is earth-carrier wind turbine that um, was what we saw as the design capabilities that would be in harmony with what we used here at the ski resort we put it out to bid in the summer of 2006 for one turbine, and that one turbine manufacturer responded to us. And they said, we're not doing, you know, one-offs. If you want five turbines, we'll talk to you, but without having some more capacity there, we just aren't going to deal with one-off sales. So I got a hold of Joel O'Donnell, and I said to Joe, how well do you know Jack Welch? And he said, I know him, you know, really well. I talk to him, you know, once a month somewhere at a meeting. So Joe called GE, or called Jack Welch, Jack Welch called GE, and within 48 hours, we had more emails and communications from GE than you could think of. But the smallest turbine they made was a 1.5 meg. So all the financial modeling we put together with the bank, and the bank looked at me like I was, you know, I'd lost my marbles, saying, you want to go into the utility business? You're in the resort business. And I got the banker fully educated. But once we went to a larger-sized turbine, it went to a larger price tag. And our banker was immersed that far, and he said, I can't justify financing this $3.5 million project, which for us was a big project, um, unless you find a way to get renewable energy credits guaranteed for a period of time. And so we went to Massachusetts Technology Collaborative, who was supporting our turbine efforts beyond belief because it was the first one in Massachusetts. Um, little did we know that it was the first one in the country. Um, and so the uh, we went back to MTC and said, look, we need to get Rex guaranteed for $100,000 a year for 10 years. Um, what can you do to help us? And they said, well, we'll back your renewable energy credits Um, to that amount of money every year for the next 10 years, and the banker said, go for it. Well, that got the financing put in place, but now GE, who was really immersed as a partner with us, and fortunately GE headquarters are in Schenectady, New York, so they're only an hour away. Um, We ended up spending a, a couple hours on the phone every week with them and detailed descriptions of how we were going to get it up the mountain, what were we doing with the utility, because the interface with the utility became critically important. And um, uh, they were concerned that we couldn't get the weight of this equipment up the mountain. And the only ski trail we had, which is called Left Bank, was gentle enough in most places except for one that was at a grade that GE didn't think we could get through. Well, make a long story short, GE agreed to support us. It took five bulldozers to haul the nacelle up through that section of the mountain. And the nacelle weighs many tons. I can't remember the exact weight, but it's something like 20 tons. And uh, that's how we got the the, uh, turbine parts up the mountain. And we opened it on uh, late July or early August of 2007. I didn't know, Stuart, that we were going to get um, accolades from people because of the vi- vi- environmental, you know, consideration that turbine represented. We did it because it was an ability to say, "How do we curb our high energy costs and do something that's going to be permanent for us, that's beneficial um, each and every year?" Well, CNN, the Weather Channel, uh, NBC. Everybody picked up on you know the environmental significance of it, and you know we uh, we accepted that credit even though it wasn't the the sound foundation of where we were going to go. If it didn't, if it couldn't pencil out, we could never have gotten a banker to you know uh, you know support us doing it. So just going back to actually getting it up the mountain, I, I
1: think that's a remarkable story that you had to bring in all the heavy equipment. Was there a point where you thought that maybe you wouldn't be able to get it up the mountain and you'd just be stuck with this unfinished project?
0: Um, I guess the insecurity side of my personality uh, absolutely had sleepless nights as we were preparing to take the heaviest pieces up there. And at first you had to take the tower sections up and the tower sections were monstrous, lengthy, and heavy in their own regard and we were working with two compress or two uh, bulldozers for taking those up, and it didn't work. And that scared the heck out of me because I said, "Holy cow, we got all this equipment here." Um, GE selling us the turbine, whether we have it as a junk pile in the parking lot or whatever. And um, a very close friend of mine was the guy doing the installation of the turbine with us. And he had some big bulldozers, and he could get another bigger bulldozer. And he said, if we can find a way to um, cable the, uh, the the tower to be able to pull it in harmony, and that became the important part is that you knew that all the bulldozers, when they started, that the cables they had attached to some aspect of the the turbine were working in harmony. That got us over the hump. But I can tell you, be until that happened... Um, I was uh, scared. I, I can tell you I was scared the most is we took it, the nacelle, we took up the, uh, do you know what the nacelle is? That's all the machinery? That's the gearboxes, the, uh, the the turbine, and so forth. Is We took it to the top of the mountain, and it had to come down the west side of the mountain because I didn't put the turbine on top of the mountain because I felt that it would be less aesthetically pleasing to be on top, that there was a saddle that we could put it on the west side and we were only going to lose a couple percent of production output, but I felt it would fit better there. And so we had to lower the nacelle down a a trail or the upper part of what's called westway. And we got to the same point in time. We were saying if we're taking the nacelle down this, what if it, you know, takes off on us and starts to, um, slide the bulldozers with it, and we immediately got five bulldozers fired back up again. I can remember the sun was about to set, and we had all five bulldozers that had to, you know, gently let the nacelle get down this steeper incline uh, to the area where it was then level to go into the turbine home. And uh, that was more of a <clears throat> not a sleepless night, it was a Oh my gosh! is this gonna you know are we gonna get in trouble and and have a pile of junk uh in the process so yeah the the turban from the finances to not being able to get it it created as many emotional stresses as you know anything in my life i I would truthfully say while how large the project was for us in nineteen eighty five to do the country in 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 eight months and by the way, back then talk about a change in banking philosophy. I got a 6 million dollar loan from our bank without a personal guarantee and without any real collateral back in 1985 to build the hotel. Well, life has changed, you know, with what happened through the late 80s and through the 90s, uh bankers got, you know, much more astute about protecting an asset going forward uh on their books. And um so and I don't know why I drifted back to that subject, but um, the complications of the turbine financially and running the numbers and getting to understand the numbers and understand what a utilization factor was and what times of the year do you, you know, you truthfully have, you know, the best winds from November to February to be able to produce the maximum output of that turbine it now generates enough electricity that it supplies a bit more than half of the, um, the resort. But um, four years later, we put in a whole new snowmaking um, uh, artillery uh, with our newest technology, which is snow gun technology, um, snowmaking heads, tube uh, stick technology but with a different nozzle on the top, and tremendously more efficient even than the previous stick technology, and we put in LED lights. And the reduction in consumption took us down enough that in combination with a solar project that Tyler created, we didn't – Tyler created it, got the permits, got the interface with the utility, and then sold it to a a big developer – But our heartbeat got that solar project started, and it's a half a mile away from the base of the mountain. We take half of its power. So we can truthfully say that we have created enough green power to be able to support. We create more green power than we use.
1: So it sounds like that project really paid off and was worth all the hassle. As you said, it's been a very long and interesting journey over the decades. And I want to talk about Brody a little bit which you purchased at the beginning of the 1999 to 2000 ski season. Uh, You bought that from longtime owner Jim Kelly. That was just a few miles down the road from Jiminy Peak. Uh, Take us back here, Brian. Why did you buy Brody and what was your plan for the mountain?
0: Well, Jim Kelly and I had become fierce competitors in the 70s and 80s. We both would go and count cars at our respective parking lots and Jim would catch one of the kids we sent over to count cars, and he'd take the book from him that he had. and It, it was a fierce competition. But in the later 90s, Jim would say to me when I'd bump into him somewhere, you know, you come on, you, it's time for you to buy Brody. And I said, no, Jim, I, I got my my, uh, my I got plenty on my plate at the moment. I'm uh, not interested. I bumped into him, and... September of 1999 um, at Home Depot. And he said to me, you know, it's time for you to buy the ski resort. Buy it now. You know, it's all ready for winter, Uh, blah, blah, blah. So um, I leaned in deeply, and we ended up closing on the ski resort in 45 days. Now, we were able to do that that quickly because Jim took the paper, and so we didn't have to go to a bank to make it happen. And um we I truthfully thought Jiminy's master plan is now realistically five to ten years from being finished, we can recreate another, you know, village concept at Brody and with the terrain it's got for beginners it's a ideal, you know, situation for us to do it. What we found out when we got there is there was enough deferred maintenance that we were spending any nickel we could put together to deal with paying for chairlift grips replacements which were a grand apiece and um other items where Jim had you know and I think full knowledge saying okay I'm not I, I don't want to keep this asset forever so I'm going to not spend some money on this and spend some money on that I'm not exaggerating I got up in 2000 the spring of 2003 and I was shaving and I said, you know, Jimmy our Brody needs um uh five or six million dollars to, you know, get it so it's competitive and you can get rid of deferred maintenance and I looked in the mirror and I said, And where are you gonna get the skiers from? And I realized they were gonna come from Jiminy and literally um I came to the conclusion that morning that it's not worth continuing to run it as a ski resort. And we announced that we were going to sh- shut it down, and we took some backlash from that from local people saying that was your game plan all along. You wanted to get rid of the competitor, and that's why you did it. And that's not why we did it. But my you know my partner Joel Donalds, when I called him that morning saying Joe, it doesn't make any sense. He he said to me, it took you long enough. Um, <laughs> you know he had, he had seen it from a distance, recognizing that hey, it's bleeding you from. It, it's taking some money from the mother ship to be able to deal with those chairlift grips, as an example. And so we ran it for a tubing operation for two years, and then we found a timeshare developer named Silverleaf in South County, and Bob Mead was the president of that company. And he had looked at Brody for doing some timesharing, and we were hopeful that we could get somewhere with him uh, to do that. He ended up buying Brody back from us and or from us and um built a timeshare building with 12 units in it that um I literally hiked up the spring to see what the condition is all the windows are broken and he spent mm-hmm. the money to put a building in and and never went any further and Brody has you know just wilted on the vine you know since then um I Jim Kelly's built a golf course you know next to the ski area and I um play golf not very well Um, In fact, actually miserably right now. And I'll bump into Jim over there at the golf course, and and he's now 86 years old, and we we, uh, have a great relationship, um, which we've had for a long time. So that's the story of Brody. So
1: as part of that sale to Silverleaf, my understanding is there was a stipulation in that contract that it not be redeveloped as a ski area. Is that true? Yes, it is.
0: How did you find that out?
1: It, it, on the internet.
0: Um, uh, okay. So, why, what made you include that clause? Because we'd gone through the efforts to to um, recognize what the competitive, you know, issue it was for us to be, you know, Jiminy Peak only in the Berkshires. We kind of said, you know, we own this asset now. Why not put it in the deed? And so we did it to protect ourselves long term. Do
1: you think if someone came along and wanted to redevelop that as a ski area, you would consider? Uh, is there a price on that? Is is that could someone buy you out of that, or or are you pretty firm on that? That you think there's only enough skiers in the area to support Gemini Peak?
0: So you you ask a good question. I don't think somebody can would even come to me with the de- desire to want to uh, buy us out because there's not enough water, and it's a critical component. To Brody, that it has a very uh, modest, small stream that is in that valley floor that has no volume to it, so snowmaking capabilities at Brody, Brody are non-existent in today's competitive environment. I mean, we convert um, six to seven thousand gallons a minute, and you know Brody's snowmaking capacity was like six hundred gallons a minute. So you look at that comparison, there's just no way you could make the numbers work. If anybody came to us and said, I want to resurrect it at a ski area, I'd, I'd want to educate them and say, you know, I might be willing to be bought out of it, but look at what you're buying out of because you, you're, um, your ability to make snow is totally jeopardized. So Brody didn't work out. Uh, nonetheless,
1: in 2010, you had an opportunity to buy Cranmore. How did that opportunity come up, and what made you decide this wasn't another Brody?
0: Cranmore was in a marketplace with North Conway that, and I don't think I'm exaggerating this number, that in a year-round basis, 10 million tourists go through North Conway. And proof of it is there's been a hotel chain built almost every summer in North Conway for the last 10 years. Cranmore was... Uh, to some extent, a problem child, and it was the um, there long before any other skiwear areas around it. And so if you think about a gas station in, in downtown uh, Buffalo, New York, back in 1956, they're no longer existing because there's so many gas stations around in the, in the suburbs. Well, Cranmore now had... Um, Major ski areas that had been built since its inception, which are Wildcat, Aditash, Brenton Woods, uh, Loon Mountain, Waterville Valley. So the ability to look at Cranmore and say, okay, what is it got as you know um, glue that's worth you know making the effort to go forward? And we concluded that it's a family-friendly environment that's got an inherent large amount of traffic uh, coming by it. And if we focus on the family aspects of it, as our marketing thrust with what we call our Kids Rule program, it's a program that will endure the test of time, because we do believe that families, as as long as they've got little ones and there's some skiing blood within that family, the ability to be able to to um, enhance my life with my children, with by taking up skiing becomes really uh, um something that's inherently there going forward. And we felt we could siphon enough of the market off to make a difference. But just as importantly, we felt there was the opportunity to accelerate a summer operation at Cranmore, much like Jiminy's, uh, to be able to make it have valuable revenues coming in in the summer. So we subsequently put in a, a whole bunch of, you know, summer activities and Cranmore, uh, Cranmore, Bromley, and Jiminy are all in summer operations and we hand out once a week or we email to everybody what we call summer or winter games and that is showing each of the management teams how did they do last week compared to the other two competitors in terms of revenue and how did their payroll costs, you know, compare Um, and it's a valuable tool that everybody looks at each week. We also put on that sheet what were your NPS scores from your guests for that week, so there's some real competitive fun juices going on between the management teams of each of the three resorts. Cranmore was at the low ebb of that revenue stream once you got started with summer, but it is the peak performer in terms of summer operations among the three resorts. And so the proof of the fact that North Conway is an attractive asset is really uh, invaluable because I had gone through the experience at Jiminy of taking old buildings that were not resur- worth resurrecting. There, there just was too much, you know, um, oldness in the building that you tear it down and you want to go replace it with a new building, and that becomes oh, uh, I got to go back to the bank again, and I got to borrow a couple million dollars. What if you put real estate on the third and fourth floor and put commercial activity on the first and second floor? You can replace an old base lodge and get a, a good portion of what you've got to build commercially covered by the real estate sales, and that's how we built the village here at Jiminy. That was the financial model, and you know, it, it the real estate didn't cover the whole nut, but it covered a lot of it. And what the buyer liked about it is they were buying into the dream that when it's all finished, I'm part of that finished product. And Village Center is, we have 50 con, 51 condominiums in Village Center. They're the most in demand on a year-round basis because they're in the heartbeat. I can park my car and I don't need to go back to my car for the whole weekend or if I'm here for four days. And so it really has proven to be, you know, the gem. That same concept is being applied to Cranmore in that there's buildings that were built in the 30s and 40s and 50s that uh, have served Cranmore well but need to be replaced. So we are in the, the third inning of working on that uh, base area uh, redevelopment plan with our first wave of condominiums that are setting the stage for us to now build a commercial building um, probably in a year and a half. We've got 37 units up, and we have all but two of them sold. And the the second phase of the building, which was 19 units, uh, those 19 units have been under construction for a year, and um, we've sold six or seven of them in the last seven weeks. I can't believe what COVID has done to, Help us with the real estate sales at Grandmore. And you, you've probably detected that's happening throughout the, the Northeast. Um, Jiminy's resales of condominiums has just been phenomenal this summer because some people have, you know, they've gotten older, they don't have any kids coming here anymore, or they've gone through a divorce, or somebody died in the family. And so those condominiums that have been made available for resale have been gobbled up. And, um, you know, we have uh, more people that are here in the summer staying overnight this summer than we've ever had uh, uh, because of COVID. Um, So it became uh, a real benefit for Cranmore in its, we call the project Kearsides Brook, um, for people to say, I've got a safe haven that if stuff gets really bad in Boston, I know where I'm going. And, um, and and the North Conway, you know, second home market, you know, small two-bedroom houses, you, you, they don't stay on the market long. So it sounds like what
1: you've really done at Cranmore, which is the same thing you did at Jiminy Peak, is really create a sense of place, which really makes it an attractive environment for people to be in. As far as the ski experience at Cranmore, what did you do on the mountain to bring that up to maybe more modern standards?
0: And what is your long-term plan for skiing at Cranmore? So we did um we put almost 10 million dollars into Cranmore over the last 10 years not including any real estate development and two or 3 million of it was dedicated to summer operations um we put in a we took out an old old double chairlift and replaced it with a triple chairlift don't hold me to it Stuart. i think 5 years ago we put in a new quad chairlift for beginners that's about 2,000 feet long, and we did that in 2011 or 12. We put, we transferred the lift that was there and made it into a kids' double chairlift with a whole kids' area that is protected from any downhill traffic coming through it, so it's really isolated and it's it's the best of our three mountains in terms of beginner terrain for the fact that it has the terrain, but it also has the lifts servicing it without, you know, the bombardment of uphill skiers coming down through it. Um, Snowmaking became uh, fundamental for us to say. They were dealing with old technology, um, and we recognized the importance of that. And before we actually even bought it, I can tell you, I, I said to the previous owners, you know, Cranmore needs a hug, but it needs snowmaking, um, I'll buy and lease a hundred stick guns to you, just to, you know, um, get them so they're competitive in the nature, and then you have an option to buy me out, and that embarrassed the previous owner enough so that they bought fifty guns and put them in, and uh, but I become very close with the Cranmore um, crew or clan. Cranmore is very much like Jiminy and Bromley in that the historical perspective creates a lot of staff loyalty and dedication and feeling a part of a family. And that's been evident at Jiminy, you know, with all the long-term players that are here. Um, And it's very much true at Cranmore and and, uh, Bromley. And we were leaning in to buy Cranmore when I discovered how much their snowmaking system needed a hug that um, that's how I was able to have some fun with the prior owner, but we subsequently bought from them, and we continued to put in so that Cranmore now, um, the joke at all three scary is you better not have a Killington ground gun in your arsenal anywhere, and, uh, you know, I I better not find it. So (laughs) it's just... uh, uh, a fun, you know, part of it, but the truth is you can run four stick guns to one killington. So why would you, you know, get dramatically less water out of, you know, an air hog? And so that, that's where we we said um additionally at um Cranmore we um uh I covered already the summer operations. The winter and the lifts, the number of lifts were three improvements. Uh, At this point, there's probably nothing on the mountain of any magnitude. There may be some – Cranmore is all rock. I don't know whether you've ever skied there or been there, but it is – Jiminy is is all rock also, but Mm -hmm. Cranmore is hard granite. And uh, so the ability to try and contour uh, trails to, you know, if they don't have a natural fall line on them and you're trying to create one, the only choice is with blasting um and so we've done some of that where it was necessary and the trail network skis I think very enjoyably um it's got some stuff that you like in terms of glades and uh you know it gets gnarly um and uh so it 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 skis well and it for sure skis well from a beginner standpoint but it's also got enough stuff to say okay it can run the gamut it's got a huge race um program the the racing team is 100 to 125 kids so there's a, a lot of um culture from the consumer standpoint as well as the staff standpoint that is very much loyalist to their respective
1: mountains yeah it's it's a great little fall line mountain skis really well i want to move on and talk about Bromley here so you don't own that mountain but took over management of it in 2011 Take us into that opportunity and why you decided to take on that challenge as you're simultaneously building up Cranmore. Joe O'Donnell, my
0: my partner, owns Bromley outright. And he um his general manager and actually was considered president and general manager retired in somewhere around two thousand and ten. And Joe hired somebody else in the industry and found that it wasn't working at all, that the the uh, staff was really frustrated and he called me and said, you know, I I want you to take a look at, at, at Bromley and see if you'd run it for me. And I was because we were so engrossed with Cranmore, I kinda said to Tyler, Tyler, I'm I'm I, I think I'm not so sure I'm inclined to want to do this. And Tyler took a different perspective and went up and met the management team up there and really came to believe that it's um, a gem in the rough that's got an extremely strong following of, for the most part, rather wealthy people. And um, he came back from spending three or four days up there saying, I think we should lean in further. And we did over the next month. And so Tyler is pretty much the... um, uh, overseer of the management team at, at and he is the overseer of the management team at Bromley. We've got a great guy there that's the uh, president and GM, and uh, Bill Carnes, who's been there for probably, I wouldn't guess Ben's been there, for, or Bill's been there for 35 or 40 years. And um, so he knows all the nuts and bolts of the place. And we've now got a very strong marketing director, guy up there who is. Um, you know, Michael Van Eyck is doing a great job. He actually oversees all the marketing of all three resorts because of his talent. And um, so Bromley has weathered the, the tough winters. Uh, we fortunately have a guy with Joe that if there's a cash flow, you know, shortfall, Joe's in the position to be able to say, okay, I don't want to put more money into it, but, you know, if I – uh, that's where my interface is. Tyler shares with me the need. Um I ended up sharing with Joe here's the need and and we've we have uh, vetted it enough that, you know, it's the fact. And um Joe's become, you know, totally happy with, you know, our operating Bromley for
1: So a couple of inherent challenges that I see in operating
0: Bromley and just curious your
1: perspective on these and how you've dealt with them. Uh, number one is just that it faces primarily south, which is not optimal for a ski area, obviously. Uh, and number two, you're kind of sandwiched between Stratton, which obviously has like unlimited money, and and you know Mount Snow is in the neighborhood, and uh, Magic's right there, which which really is is a is a undergoing a resurgence under Jeff Hathaway and his group, and it's kind of a darling indie right now. Um, how have you kind of managed that unusual set of Uh,
0: challenges in in Bromley in the last 10 years? By keeping the loyalists uh, even more loyal. Uh, There's 300 condominiums at uh, Bromley and they've all been built a long time ago. And so the people that own there, it's a large share of Connecticut people and a large share of New York people. And it's one of the few places that I would think there's been Hand me downs of condominiums from grandma and grandpa to the kids to the that's now in the third generation from Fred Pabst years ago and then Stig Albertson. And um, so that 300 condominiums uh, is feeding the ski area with a full house on most weekends and holidays. And so you, you got a thousand people that are taking advantage of the mountain that are, you know, um, that that love the mountain, we do things to try and make sure they're happy with us, uh, whether it's a cocktail party, whether it's uh, you know skiing first tracks with Bill, um, and, and therefore we've done our best to nurture that relationship. Well, when you've got a basis of that number of people that are, you know, um, if, if there's three in a family and there's 300 condominiums, you've got 300 loyalists using the mountain, but those people also bring people with them. And so those people have grown uh, as part of our uh, family of guests to be even stronger because they came here, they had a great experience. One of the differences about the, the Other Than Magic, if you look at the volume of business that goes on at Stratton and the downhill traffic relationship and the same thing's true at Killington, and Mount Snow, Bromley's kind of a, a bit of a gem in terms of those loyalist perceptions of it, and therefore they're not so inclined to go elsewhere. Um, you know, magic and watching what he's doing with, using Twitter as an example, he's he's developing that cultural relationship with you know his family of people, and and he's going to find a niche. Um, the biggest thing I get concerned with for magic because we oversaw it for a couple years for Joel O'Donnell is water and snowmaking water which is is, you know if you don't have water you know we're all facing a real scary situation right now in New England and we've had no rain and um, of magnitude and we need water uh, badly because it's you know the streams that get flowing that we are then if they're flowing adequately we're able to take water out of them and either impound it somewhere or utilize it you know at that very moment and um so it and stratton's done a great job of thinking way ahead of the curve because 10 years ago they built a 300 million gallon reservoir and they fill it in the spring and so they're sitting there with enough water to get them through the winter
1: yeah magic also has a a long-term snowmaking pond expansion going on so wishing the best of luck to them. Um as far as long-term upgrades at Bromley, do you have anything in mind for lifts or snowmaking? Uh Blue Ribbon Quad for example, dates to 1988.
0: No, um we don't and I would dare say it's um uh, the owner's perspective that I you know I'm not inclined to think that there's justification for replacing that quad as an example to a detachable because I don't think it's going to get a a return on its investment because, you know, the competition out there in the marketplace just isn't going to warrant, you know, making that upgrade. Um, We don't have anything on the drawing board. Uh, We have been trying to get through state permits to deal with a condominium project. Um, at, at Bromley, and we unfortunately, after three years of working on it, and I spent most of my time working with Bill on this, is we ran into a wet, wetlands problem at what was going to be the bottom of a, a new lift, and the wetlands problem is uh, you know, insurmountable, and so we've had to pack up our bags on that effort, and that would have ignited some changes at Bromley.
1: Where was that new lift going to be?
0: You know where the general store is on the on the yeah. main road, mm-hmm. um, right to Johnny Seesaws. If you know where that is, yep. just to the west of Johnny Seesaws, and behind the general store was where the base uh, area was going to be for this condominium project, with a new beginner lift to take it up to the uh, the, the quad that you were referring to, and um service a, a bunch of beginner terrain, even more beginner terrain for uh, you know, with, with it all being green and therefore it was going to be advantageous for our kids rule program. We are um handcuffed at Bromley more so than um Jiminy and, and by far Cranmore has the best situation as I've shared already that the um uh, beginner terrain for a true first timer is not as attractive at Bromley as we wish it was.
1: So I want to look a little bit more here, Brian, just at the at the broader industry. So you've built your own little ski conglomerate, and as you've done so, you've seen the industry consolidate around you. So Vale, for example, now owns three mountains in Vermont, Hunter Mountain in New York, and four mountains in New Hampshire. Uh, you've seen the Epic Pass move in with all those mountains. Uh, Altera moved in in 2018 with its Icon Pass, which covers a number of mountains in the region and, and recently added uh, Wyndham, um, which is pretty close to you. Uh, wh- what's your reaction, first of all, just watching all this consolidation?
0: I've lived through it before. Um, Interwest and American Ski Company uh, in the 90s were doing the same thing in the late 80s and put pressure on us. They did not develop this unique Epic Pass concept, which is probably um, you know the biggest one that's hard to compete with. And um, so I look at the future and say as long as we continue to take care of our loyalists and as long as we are able to take care of our new guests in a way that makes a difference in terms of their relationship with us. And um, there's a secret sauce in all of it as it pertains to Net Promoter Score. And Net Promoter Score tells us what the guests think of us And it tells us what the new guest thinks of us and what things we have to correct. And that becomes, you know, vitally important to say, well, we may not be as big as Stratton. What does Bromley need to do to make sure you've done what you can with your assets and done it in such a way that your guest scores are, you know, as strong as they can be?
1: So one of the things you're up against here is, you know, Vail's Epic Vocal pass is 749 bucks, gives you unlimited access to Okemo, Mount Snow, Hunter, Four Mountains in New Hampshire, 10 days of stone, and access out west. Uh, Icon Base Pass is good for most days at Stratton and Sugarbush and days at Killington, etc. Um, those passes are are pretty cheap in comparison to your season passes. At Jiminy Peak is 989, Bromley is 975. Um, Cranmore is a bit cheaper at 769. Well, you know them you know better than I do, Stuart. <laughs> well, I wrote, I wrote them down, to be fair. So, so in in this landscape, Brian, how do you how do you justify these prices
0: in this landscape? Because our season tickets are growing at all three mountains. With those prices in hand, Cranmore has grown the most. It's up 15 percent, and it's and, up 15 percent with those prices.
1: And and do your do your season pass holders ever come to you and ask, for example, like? Do you ever consider combining the three mountains into one pass?
0: No, because, gee, I mean, Bromley and Jiminy, we've talked about it, and we've come to the conclusion at the moment we we give, um, I forgot whether we give everybody the right to go to Bromley twice or whether it's once with their season ticket from here. And Cranmore is five hours away, totally different market, Boston. Um, Bromley and Jiminy kind of duke it out more so um, than uh, Cranmore. Um, we have toyed with dealing with the structure of Bromley and, and Jiminy and have shied away from it for numerous reasons that at, at the moment uh, haven't changed. And so we um, it becomes a matter of saying, okay, um, what do you do when you overtax your downhill traffic capabilities by season ticket holders and have an ability to sell an all-day ticket for somebody to ski among that large crowd of people. And it all comes back to saying those newbies have to be satisfied. And if they find it's too chaotic, whether the lift lines are too chaotic or the slopes downhill are too chaotic, I think it jeopardizes their experience
1: So you have joined one past coalition, which is you put Cranmore on the White Mountain Superpass with Bretton Woods, Cannon, and Waterville Valley. Why did that coalition make sense to you?
0: Because it's in that particular market. It's something that all four areas collaboratively concluded that it was, and it's been there for a long time. This isn't something that, you know, I, I don't, I think it was in place when we got there. Uh, I, I i won't swear to that cuz i'm not sure i'm accurate with that statement but in that particular market they found a way to be comfortable with you sell the ticket you get to keep the money we're not going to track usages and 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 it's working for them would you ever consider a partnership
1: with like an indie pass or icon pass or anyone else who came to you and wanted to do one of these limited day partnerships
0: it comes back to the question: How many uh, season tickets do you really want to sell? I mean, for us to grow at fifteen percent at Cranmore is a comfortable number. Um, it's not; it, it's for sure coming from some of our day skiers, and so we're going to lose some day traffic because they flopped over to a season ticket. Um, and um, you know, I'm not saying we're no on the Indy Pass forever. We just concluded at this moment in time with COVID on our. Uh, responsibility plate, all the things. I I can tell you in my 51 years, 52nd winter coming up for me at Jiminy, I have never seen a challenge to run these little cities like we're facing with COVID and the complications of from parking to toilets, to the rental shop, to your kids program, to lift capacity and utilization um, to, uh, you know, fanny space to go in a building uh to ski patrol and how do you protect the staff from you know somebody who's gotten hurt and doesn't have a mask on and deal with their angst how do you deal with keeping ski patrol huddled together at the top of the mountain to be ready to go if they need to be um the complications are just amazing and we came to, came to the conclusion let's pay attention to our own um ships for this year because there's so many ultimate challenges going on, and we're walking into this winter, saying, "What the heck do we do if we get shut down through no fault of our own? If New York becomes a hot spot like New Jersey has in the last 48 hours? I mean, when that came out from our governor on Monday morning, what had happened to New Jersey? We kind of our jaws dropped. And I don't know whether you know, are aware of what has happened, but it's now back in, in the red zone. And our governor has said you can't come in from New Jersey without being quarantined for 14 days or proof that you've had a positive or a negative uh, um, result within 72 hours. And if you're a violator, it's a $500 fine. We don't have to enforce it, but somebody has the the right to enforce that. And all it does is shut down traffic. Um, I can tell you from the standpoint of the Three Mountains, for the summer – Bromley got hurt the worst in terms of summer operations. Jiminy and Grandma are, are almost neck and neck with a year ago, which is mm. shocking to us. If you would t- told me that in June, I would have said, put it on the credit card right now. Yes. Um, but Bromley, because of the state's um, uh, restrictiveness of people coming into the city or into the state, in essence saying, stay away, we don't want you, um, really has Taking its toll, and and I think proof of what's going on with Killington and Jay Peak and Jay Peak saying we don't need to deal with uh, ticket reservations because with Canada cut off at the pass, the, we're not going to have a problem with you know ticket limitations. So they're running business as usual, and we're dealing with it, saying no, we got to be prepared for reductions. We hired snow engineering to help us with the mountains to say what is. Our real comfortable capacity, given COVID, and in essence, we've got to run on peak days at you know 66 or 70 percent of what we could before. So 30 percent of the days that you get um, to pay the bills with and hopefully develop a profit have been evaporated. Yeah,
1: and to add to that challenge, you're dealing with three different sets of regulations in three different states, all of which are interpreting this very differently.
0: Yep. That's why I was so impressed with you knowing our season ticket prices and I don't. Um and you're absolutely right. I can't keep up with the changes in the state codes. And 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 Tyler does a better job of it than I do.
1: Well that that takes me into to my last question here, Branks. We're we're way over and I wanna I want to give you your morning back. But but before I let you go, uh you've mentioned Tyler many times. Uh for for people who are listening and may not know, that's your son um and, and has been Running Fairbank Group with you for for a very long time now. Can you just talk about that relationship and and how meaningful it is for you to run this business with your son and be able to to pass on some of your life's work to him.
0: It's a, a dream come true for a father. Uh, Tyler left me and and I refer to it as left me in 1979 or 1999, uh, a month before we bought Brody. And he left to go work for TUB, which is a a German company that deals with um, certifying medical devices, security devices around the world. And uh, uh, and it was a great opportunity for him. In fact, it's, you know, a, a major continued growth issue for him to go someplace else. But I would tell you I cried, you know the day he was going out the door, and I knew he wasn't coming back. And, uh, you know, and I kind of felt like that's probably a permanent decision, and that happened until 2008. And then he kind of said, gee, I'm sick of being on an airplane um, and not being around my family, and I I really want to see if there's something else we can do. And at that point it was just Jiminy. And because of the wind turbine, that spawned eels for Tyler to have something to put his teeth in that wasn't, you know, following, you know, in his father's footsteps completely. And so having him back here now to be able to say, okay, I'm shouldering, you know, uh, a lion's share of the operational responsibilities. And, you know, that's, um, uh, you know, awesome. And he says, you know, one of the biggest assets he has and And the organization is me because he can turn to me for advice on the subject, and I can give him my best advice and say that's one man's opinion and if if that helped you um you know come back to me if I can offer anything further so it's it's been a very uh we don't go out of here um any nights with one of us having an angst to the other guy.
1: Well, it sounds like you've built something special together and and you have many more years together to to continue to build this special thing. So congratulations on that and congratulations again on your Hall of Fame induction, Brian. And thank you so much for your time today. I really cannot thank you enough. I know how busy you are getting ready for this uh, COVID ski season. So I appreciate the time and I will hope that I can make it up to some of your resorts this winter.
0: Okay. thank you. Have a good day. It's Brian
1: Fairbank, chairman of the Fairbank Group. I hope you enjoyed that. I sure as hell did. What he's accomplished in this very tough northeast ski environment is incredible. If you haven't been to their three mountains, go check them out this winter. They're very well managed and very fun places to ski, and now you know a bit more about each of them. So thank you very much for that, Brian, and thank you all for listening. Remember to to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. If you've already subscribed, sign up your friends. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.